0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Professor of Sport and Exercise Science and Medicine at UTS, Franco Impelizare. Into this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, I am absolutely delighted to welcome a legend in sports science in Franco in Palazeri. So, in this episode, we discuss um, some of the things, some of the dogmas that Franco intends to challenge, having uh, been back at UTS for the last um, six to eight months. Um, some of them been worst case scenario, tactical periodization. Um, and training load for injury prevention. Within that, we discuss um, the acute chronic workload ratio, which anyone that follows Franco on social media will know that he has challenged a couple of people um, over the last couple of months um, with regards to the acute chronic. So really interesting chat with Franco, and I'm sure you'll get so much out of it because it brings a a really fresh perspective on a couple of the... um, topics that have been discussed quite heavily on the podcast so really uh, appreciative of, of Franco coming on and giving his honest um honest feedback and honest uh opinion on quite a lot of this, the stuff that we uh, that we chat about in this episode so I'm sure you'll get a lot from it and enjoy the podcast with Franco. This episode of the Pacey Performance podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you are able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. head over to their website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, which you can you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanist researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app for lower limb load monitoring uh, and helps practitioners optimize return to play for running-based sports. So unlike GPS, AMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two very small synchronized high-frequency tibial one sensors which quantify three things. The intensity of each step an athlete takes, precise left and right lower limb asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. So iMeasureU is now part of Vicon and works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world. So if you want to get more information and know more about iMeasureU, head over to the website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureu. So without further ado, over to the episode with Franco Impelazeri. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning, I am delighted to welcome Franco Impellizzeri, who is the Professor of Sport and Exercise Science and Medicine at UTS. So welcome to the podcast, Franco. Hi, Rob. Thank you for the invitation. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for giving up your time, mate. Um, so anyone that doesn't know who you are, it'd be great to get a little bit of a history lesson on your background, your couple of transitions that you've made, and how you've ended up at UTS. Uh, okay, so I'm
1: a sports scientist, but I, I would say I'm a coach inside. And I have a PhD in sports science, but I start my professional activity in sport in a private research center that basically was created by a multinational company to support teams and athletes sponsored by the company. So I start as a coach and not as a researcher and this was good because i had the possibility to have a disposal a lot of technologies but also a lot of athletes in several sports and 10 years ago i changed a bit area i wanted to 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 start a new experience so i went working in zürich in switzerland in uh, an orthopedic clinic and basically there i work in um, in clinic matrix which is a subdiscipline of psychometrics. Uh, in other words, I, were, I was dealing with the so-called patient-reported outcomes, that is questionnaires that are developed for measuring patients' incomes, which is very methodological and quite far from sport, uh, apparently. And when I was in Switzerland, I collaborated with the F Mark of FIFA. So I, I went on with some collaborations in sport. And... My background as, a, as an athlete, uh, I was a track and field, very bad track and field athlete, and I was a bit better a taekwondo athlete. I was in the national team. So I would say mainly I am. I come from combat sports. And that's a bit my history is not a, a, a usual history. It's quite unusual because I started to do research and not uh, because part of my job, but because I really needed some information to coach the athletes in a better way, or because I didn't have uh, the information I needed. And this, for sure, something has influenced it a lot my career.
0: So, why did you initially move away from sports science to move to Switzerland? What was the what was the trigger?
1: Uh, basically, I was a bit. Um, um, I was curious to try something else and uh, I was attracted by the clinical setting because I know the the research quality there is quite high and I wanted to, to try, I, want to, I wanted to see if I was able to work in another field and my idea was to learn something new and before coming back in sports science, uh, I have to say that I like the job and instead of staying in clinical setting just a few years, I stayed almost 10 years and until i received some offers to come back in uh, sports science
0: and what was the trigger for coming back were you waiting for an opportunity or was it something that you were kind of really pushing for to come back into sports science
1: actually i I missed a lot um because sport is my passion Mm, this is good from um, from one side and not good from the other side because I cannot differentiate my private life by my job. So it can be a problem in my private life because for me, relaxing is reading papers on, on sports science. And so I, I miss a lot. And, but I didn't actually ask to come back. I was just saying, as soon as I have a good uh, occasion that I like, I come back and and actually this occasion arrived because uh, I received some offers from Australia that I consider for sports science very good. And so at the end, I, I decided to come back uh, full time in sports science.
0: Excellent. So so give us a bit of a history lesson. What's What were you doing before you left the clinical setting and what's changed? What, been involved in the industry what trends have developed and then we'll get on to the things that you maybe agree with or maybe going to challenge in the future what's what's changed what's the what's the history of of 10 years ago and now
1: yeah i have to say that uh it's not only mm, due to the last 10 years Uh, uh, growing up in private setting i had to face with a different kind of priorities compared to the academic environment for example um, in clinical setting the, the the main goal was to improve the 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 satisfaction of the patients and which is uh, like when i was working in uh, the SPA research center the, the goal was not to produce uh, research it was to win something could be a world championship, and Olympic games, or whatever. The same in the clinical setting. the The final goal is to have patients that feel patients that feel better. And I think this was and is uh, um the main difference between me and maybe some other colleagues. Every time I I read a paper, I always ask myself, what about the performance? So, uh, how can I use this for changing the training or influencing the training. And I think this is uh, something important that also uh, researchers uh, have always to take into account, that at the end of the day, if we work in sports science, especially for high performance, we need to focus on the outcome, not just, for example, on the mechanisms. Um, so compared to 10 years ago, I would say that I, I hope to be a better researcher because they've, uh, the standard, the quality standard in clinical setting are a bit higher than in sports science. And probably this is what I learned more to 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 run better uh, studies from a methodological point of view. That's why I look sometimes critical, but it's not that I'm critical uh, for attitude because I, I know how good studies
0: are run. So in terms of the practice that you're hearing, reading, seeing, how's that changed over the last, you know, since you've been away and then since come back?
1: Yeah, I mean, mm, it didn't change so much. I mean, if I understood well the question, uh, is basically I always try to, to read something with a, a practical purpose in my mind. Uh, and just In terms of sports science, apply sports science, of course. On the other side, I, I used to read a lot in other areas. I think one of the main problems we have, for example, in sports science, is that we focus too much on our literature. And sometimes we reinvent the wheel. And the problem is that sometimes we reinvent the wheel, but square, because in other areas, some issues, some topics have been addressed since several years. So um, I'm always quite practical in what I do. And also when I read, I always find some practical applications.
0: So is, is there any examples of that, Franco, that you've seen where people are thinking something's new, but actually in other industries it's been done and been done a long time? Yeah. For example, we, we are running a systematic reviews on that.
1: I anticipated the results. Uh, basically, in sports science, you know, now we use a lot of questioners and scales. And the problem is that um, most of these questioners and scales are not validated. So in theory, we don't even know what we are measuring. And in other fields, like uh, in clinical setting, there is uh, an extensive literature on how to validate, uh, how to develop and how to use questioners and scales. It's like, uh, for example, the Borg scale, uh, which is developed using psychophysic methods. So it's not just uh, a series of numbers with adjectives. There is a specific, uh, There are specific uh, methods to develop this scales. And for question, it's the same. Now we mention often uh, about wellness, but we, st- we even don't know what wellness means. I mean, uh, before measuring something, we need to understand what we want to measure. So that's that's an example, and it's. But we don't need to improve uh, the question. We don't need to do a lot. It's uh, it's enough to apply uh, what has been done in other fields. There are guidelines published where it's written basically everything you need to know for developing good uh, instruments. But we mostly ignore. That's just an example because now I see questioners well wellness questions everywhere, and based on our review. with the exclusion of a couple uh, all the other instruments have been not validated at
0: all
1: so in theory you shouldn't use <laughs> that's the mm-hmm. point
0: mm-hmm. so one thing i wanted to get your opinion on and something that you've um, spoken quite a bit on recently especially on on social media was training load for injury prevention purposes just want to give us a bit of a, an overview on your thoughts on that as a as a kind of general theme, and then we'll dig a little bit deeper as we uh, as we go go on.
1: Yeah, um, consider that um, I validated session RP in soccer almost more than ten years ago. Probably it's close to fifteen years ago, but I never tried to see a relation between the training load and the injury, and there are two options. One is because I'm not smart, and that's possible. But the second is because I, I didn't find a, a theoretical framework um, linking the training load to the injury. And when I mention a training a theoretical framework, I mean something, a, a precise scheme that can link some specific metric to the mechanisms of injury. Uh, the only the the only scientific rationale behind the training load and injury relation is that if I train too much, something happened. I'm tired, I'm fatigued, and therefore the injury risk can increase. In my opinion, it's a bit uh, too simplistic. Um, you can say that despite this, there are studies showing a relation with training load. But what I'm saying in the last uh, period is that. The studies uh, trying to find the relation between the training loaded injury are, mm, op, mm, let's say, not optimal quality. I want to be polite today. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's it's plenty of artifact. There are studies examining like like the last one published on soccer where you can find almost more than six hundred. Risk ratios or um, injury risk values. So, the risk of uh, false positive is very high. The results are quite inconsistent. So, you can find a study showing that uh, the chronic, high chronic load increases uh, the injury, another study, high chronic uh, decrease. So, it's quite confusing. So, my idea is that it's possible that there is some relation, some associations between training load and injury and mainly because the training load is a basically is a measure of exposure. So it's clear that the more I do the the higher the risk of injury. But from a practical point of view, I don't think that we are able to use any of these uh, results for designing better training programs. Because if we think that the one of the claim is that training too much too fast is bad, I mean I don't know what are the, the coaches they know? But I don't know coaches that want to train too much too soon. Usually there is always a progression. When something happens, it's because we cannot do anything. Uh, maybe there is, a, there are some contextual factors that we cannot, cannot control. But any good coach, any good coach knows that the, the training should follow a progression. So basically from a practical point of view, I don't see. How these studies can give give the coaches something more. That's my general view of the topic.
0: So, in terms of the quality of the research, what is what is lacking? Just give us a little bit more detail on on that point. Well, I need time here. <laughs>
1: first of all, as I said, that there is a problem of uh, the lack of theoretical framework. Uh, From a methodological point of view, this is a a huge problem because this means that we don't develop studies to try to find some specific uh, uh, associations. We just fish in the lake. So we just take what we have and we just run the analysis, Uh, hundreds of uh, risk ratios or whatever. We found a bunch of significant results and we built some let's say a story around that and that's very bad so the first problem is that we don't have a real framework there are some attempts of framework which are some squares with some arrows but it's not exactly what is uh, what i mean for a framework A framework is something that can help me in designing a study and deciding that i have to look at the, i don't know sprinting uh, distance or acceleration, because this can be related to some mechanism in, in, in favoring the injuries and not, for example, total distance or not uh, session RP. At the moment, we don't have that. At the moment, we have studies showing, for example, that uh, total distance, uh, high total distance is related to injury, but not a high sprinting distance. And I still, I'm still trying to understand why this is possible. And I suspect this this is an artifact, but that's just let uh, uh, say a generic uh, a generic problem. The other problem is the matrix. We have a lot of matrix. We have week to week variation, acute chronic ratio, uh, the low chronic uh, um, ratio, uh, the low chronic acute chronic ratio. So all these combinations, which uh, which are really not. Uh, they don't have a real ratio behind. But even the, the, the acute chronic ratio, uh, which is based on the Bannister model, actually, it's a, it's a nonsense because the Bannister model was developed for performance first. And the Bannister model is based on the exponential decay. The, the seven days and 28 days are uh, approximation of these decays in the Bannister model. But to think about the the last week as acute uh, and acute load and fatigue and the the the, the four uh, weeks chronic uh, four weeks as the fitness is a very is a simplification of the concept consider that the banister model uh, doesn't work so well even in performance you can imagine how can can this work for injury so the, 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 the Bannister model, the fatigue, fatigue fitness model behind the, some of these matrix is actually, in my opinion, makes absolutely no sense. I mean, it's, it's something that has to do with the performance and nothing with the, with the, any injury mechanisms. And I'm not the only one to think the uh, same. So, as I said, we have all these matrix which are, in my opinion, questionable. We don't know the time windows. Sometimes in some studies they use one week. Sometimes they try from one week to four weeks. And so they try all the combinations. And there is a study actually quite nice of Kerry. They tried uh, 336 different combinations. And I still don't understand how to interpret this combination. Sometimes it's three days combined with 21 days uh, that seems to predict. But again, I do not see the rationale behind that. The studies use uh, the problem of using categories and they they use from two to six categories. Again, how these categories uh, uh, are created and why, we don't know. And there are papers in which they try everything. So they use all the ratios, all the matrix. they try to combine uh, one week with two weeks, three weeks and so on. So you can imagine the, the confusion coming from these studies. And that's another problem. We, we don't know what's the best indicator of training load uh, exposure because uh, we use GPS and session RP. Uh, you know, I, I, dev- I validated the session RP in soccer, but to be honest, it's a very global indicator of load, so it seems to me a bit uh, too optimistic to think that a, a, an indicator like that can be related to to injury. Indeed, there are studies showing, for example, that a high uh, acute chronic workload measured with the session RP, it's even protective, which makes no sense, of course. So the, the more I increase, the more I protect the player. And the, for the GPS, is exactly the same. We have plenty of metrics. We try to use everything, and sometimes we find that sprinting is not related to injury, but acceleration is related to injury. Again, I'm still waiting for someone explaining why this is possible. So these are some of the problems, the statistical analysis. The statistical analysis is quite – is not proper, I would say, because uh, one of the problem with injuries are the the recurrent injuries so we have players with more more than one injury and usually this is not considered in the statistical analysis and I can go on I can go on a lot but that, just to say that there are a lot of
0: problems in in, in these studies So in terms of the acute chronic quantity- workload ratio why has it in your opinion why has it got so much popularity given the limitations that you've a number of which you've just outlined
1: uh, basically because it's a nice concept I and mean, i'm afraid that people most of the time uh, even don't think too much what this uh, ratio means which is just the how much the the load increase of course behind the the ratio the, there is the theory of the um, fatigue, uh, fatigue and fitness um, model, and it's uh, it's an attractive it's an attractive matrix, uh, probably more attractive than the week to week variation that probably works exactly in the same way. But the problem is that the acute chronic ratio um, raises a lot of methodological problems. I don't want to enter too much in the statistics, but there is the group of uh, Lolly, Atkinson, and Batram and Quarters that rise the problem of mathematical coupling and the spurious correlation. But they also rise another problem. They have shown that, for example, the acute chronic uh, ratio is correlated to the chronic to the chronic load. So high uh, acute chronic uh, ratio corresponds to low chronic load. And that's, for example, one of the reasons probably why some studies show that the injury risk increase with a high chronic, uh, high acute chronic ratio and low chronic load. So I I, I really don't know why it was so popular. I mean, I have a theory (laughs) why, but it would would be a bit impolite.
0: Hmm? I understand. So, so where from here for the acute-chronic workload ratio? Is there is there legs there, or should people are people in a position where they should move away from it completely? I mean, in my
1: opinion, the acute-chronic workload ratio doesn't give any any anything really useful, but mainly problems. Other than the problems I mentioned about the spurious correlation or whatever. And there is the problem of, of um, for example, that the, because basically it's a percent change, almost. And for low chronic load, the, the same absolute uh, increase corresponds to a higher percent increase. And this was acknowledged by the group of Gabbett, because in their studies, like in the last studies of Bowen, um, and, and the last studies of, well, I'm not sure, but in several studies, they cut the workload, the, the, yes, the cro- workload, chronic uh, workload below one or two standard deviation because they have this problem that the same absolute change at low load uh, corresponds to a high percentage change. So my question is why I have to cut here and there because the acute uh, chronic uh, ratio um, cause this problem. I just don't use the, the acute chronic ratio. My opinion, on the week to week variation is more than enough. I don't see really the, the reason to, to, to go on with this acute chronic ratio. In addition, there is another study, a recent study that was presented as law and analytics that have shown that when you use the acute chronic ratio without taking into account the scheduling of the, of the team, this create, uh, can create uh, false positives or spurious relations. So I don't see any advantage. In my opinion, if we want to use something uh, reflecting the week-to-week change, I would just use the week-to-week change. It's easier. No problem of mathematical coupling, easy, easy to understand. And I would use the absolute change because in, in we are talking about training at the end. So the same uh, workload change is not the, uh, the same percentage. Uh, if it's uh, in absolute terms different, it's not the same for the human body.
0: So gonna continue go a very quick break in the chat with Franco. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we discuss a couple of other dogmas that Franco intends to challenge over the next couple of months and years. So one being worst case scenario, to periodization and also tactical periodization and then we finish off the chat with a bit of an overview of the publication that Franco released with Aaron Coots on internal and external load 15 years on which is a really nice way to end the podcast but just before we do get into part two I want to say a big thanks to fatigue science for sponsoring this episode today so fatigue science have exclusive access of the SAFT model which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Duniken, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAF model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the Readyband from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website. Uh, FatigueScience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at FatigueScience. So also sponsoring today's podcast is St. Mary's University. So St. Mary's is internationally renowned as a leader in strength and conditioning education, and it was the first UK institution to offer an undergraduate degree in strength and conditioning. And its master's program, which I have been through personally and would highly recommend, was the first part-time distance learning strength and conditioning course in the UK and it's the emphasis on the development of coaching skills and relevance of theory to practice which makes St. Mary's stand out from the other courses that are out there. So both uh, undergraduate and postgraduate courses are delivered in the purpose-built state-of-the-art performance education centre and anyone that's been to St. Mary's will know what a fantastic uh, facility that is and is taught by staff that are highly experienced coaches and expert sports scientists. And one thing that students are really on the lookout for now is universities' links with uh, professional sport and that's definitely something that St Mary's has with their links with multiple football clubs across London in Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Fulham, but also uh, London Irish in Rugby and Sutton Tennis Academy. They also embed students within the Royal Ballet Company, and Royal Ballet School in London and this obviously helps students stop saying uh, necessary coaching experience to maximise their chances of getting employment post-graduation. So in addition to the Strength and Conditioning courses, they offer both undergraduate and postgraduate programmes in physiology and sports rehab. But if you're interested in getting to know more about the courses at St Mary's, make sure you visit their website, uh, which is stmarys.ac.uk forward slash courses. So another thing that I wanted to ask you about and I think that this, this is something that's potentially going to be also be challenged in the in the near future is the the worst case scenario that's been obviously talked a lot about much of which on the on the podcast by people just yeah. talk to a little bit talk to a little bit about your thoughts on that and where that's going moving forwards
1: yeah anyway I I I, I anticipate that I when I came back I found three dogmas that I think are questionable and one is related to the training load injury relation the second is uh, about the worst case scenario and the third is about practical periodization so these are the three concepts that make me uncomfortable at least from a scientific point of view because the advantage coming back after years is that I'm I'm less biased so when I, when I start to, to read about these uh, topics, I read in a unbiased way. So I just try to understand better. And worst case scenario is something I still don't understand. I'm, to be honest, I, I'm collecting some data. We want to run some studies on that. The problem of the worst case scenario is that I don't like how it's applied. Um, we are going to submit a paper in which we found that the... In several professional teams, they use the worst case scenarios to set up the the target quantity of training, uh, which is from a, a physiological point of view not really relevant, and in my opinion, it makes no sense at all. Because the the reason why I train someone is because I want to induce some physiological or physical changes. Is not because I want to reproduce the same amount. Of of uh, for example sprints they do in the worst case scenario. Uh, consider that the worst case scenario is a single is a single uh, phase of a match. So even if I know that the players is running ten times uh, sprinting in three minutes, uh, okay, this is relevant in terms of uh, knowing um, what is required in the in the worst situation. But they cannot train just the worst case scenario, because uh, if these 10 sprints are out of 100 that the player has to do during a match, I should train the one, uh, the ability to cope with the 100 sprints, not just the 10 sprints. So the concept and how the worst case scenario is applied, in my opinion, is quite worrying. Uh, I, I, I completely don't agree how is used this worst case scenario. And the second point is that is really inconsistent. Uh, if you use the worst case scenario to set up the quantity, what happens if after two months you find that the worst case scenario is uh, is worst? I mean, you have to run more sprints. What does it mean that you you train you under train before? So there's really no uh, no way to 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 understand how is applying in, in this moment in several professional teams. So I'm really uncomfortable with this idea. I, I think the worst case scenario is just uh, an information more that can help me in understand the physiological requirements overall of a match, but it's not for sure, based on my opinion, the goal of the training. And for example, you can have the same worst case scenario at the beginning or at the end of the of a match. It's not it's not the same because as a, as, as you know the let's say the internal load the the physiological load is for sure different if you run the same quantity at the end or at the beginning, because there is some accumulated fatigue. So the use of worst-case scenario, in my opinion, is even dangerous in this moment. And I will try to address this topic in the future, if possible.
0: So I'll come back to the same question again that I used for the acute chronic, chronic workload ratio. Why has that taken on such a prevalent kind of space in, in sports science?
1: because it was endorsed by a scientific journal basically <laughs> that that's the main reason in my opinion because uh, uh, between 2013 and 14 there were four matrix that have been proposed in the literature one is the acute chronic ratio it was proposed a week to week change in absolute terms and in relative terms and there was another study calculating the um, basically something similar to the worst-case scenario, but using the four weeks before the acute uh, the acute week. And for some reasons, uh, the 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 acute not some reason the the British Journal of Medicine published papers and editorials where they promote the acute chronic ratio, and that's probably the reason why it became so popular. And you know that on the on the social media, uh, you can see a lot of times reported the, the, the graph showing the U shape uh, uh, published on the editorials. So I think that this contributed in an important way to the to the popularity of the acute
0: chronic ratio. So third and final um dogma that has kind of you've been thinking a lot about in is is the is common periodization do you just want to talk to a little bit about that and where your head's at with that and why why you're thinking the way you do and what the potential future is for this area
1: you mean for the periodization
0: for periodization correct
1: yeah 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 Now, uh one of the good things when i arrived here in uh uh, in Australia and, uh, UTS is that one of my colleagues is, uh, the name is Job Fransen he's an expert in skill acquisition. And I was really curious. So basically it is about six months that I'm stalking uh, Job with email and in every really way possible because I'm really interested in this topic. And I learned a lot from him. Uh, I'm not an expert at all, so I will. I just rely on uh, his suggestion, and I read the papers he suggests me. And I think that, for example, if we touch the issue of tactical periodization from a skill acquisition perspective, uh, is a bit questionable uh, because basically the training is very uh, context specific. So as soon as you change something compared to the real competition. Uh, you are basically not training the, the real competition, and that's that's an important an important things to to, to consider when we talk about the uh, training tactical components or even technical components. And I have to be honest, I see some similarities uh, with this approach also in terms of normal periodization. So for the future, I would like to, to explore more. This connection, because I think that uh, skill acquisition can be another way to approach uh, periodization. I mean, skill acquisition, the skill acquisition, uh, the skill acquisition uh, approach is another way to to, to think about periodization. But I'm still elaborating. I'm still elaborating, and this uh, is uh, everything is related to the concept of transfer? Because as I said, I, I was a coach. I, I, I'm a coach because I was. I was the coach of the Swiss uh, fencing team uh, for the Olympic Games in uh, Rio de Janeiro, and I trained them for five years. And clearly, even if I, I had my methods based on uh, um, resistance training, plyometrics, power training, and things like that, and but I was really concerned on how to trans to transfer what I have done with uh, generic training to the specific. Uh, to the specific movement, and I think that I approached the problem from the from the right, uh, wrong uh, in the wrong way. And now I'm trying to address the same problem from a skill acquisition perspective. Of course, I'm asking up to my colleague because it's not my area. So we are trying to really develop uh, multidisciplinary studies.
0: So at that time, with the fencing. Guys, in the in the up to the Olympics, how were you frame? What was your frame of thought in terms of periodization? Well, how did you how did you plan your training? And it'd be great to know just with the, with the few conversations yeah, yeah. that you've yeah, had sure. with your colleague how that would change.
1: Yeah, of course the the um, for periodizing uh, in fencing is a bit easier than, for example, in team sports, because uh, we have a calendar. So we know when we have the World Cup competition, when we had the European Championship or the World Championship or the Olympic Games. So, for example, starting five years before the Olympic Games, the, I could uh, plan uh, the, the, the five years work. For example, the guys were not used to train using uh, weightlifting uh, exercises. So let's say the first year I, I spent the first year mainly to, to to teach uh with the help of um, a weightlifter instructor to teach the proper technique so i was able to to, to increase the really the the weight and the load the, the second the third and the fourth year so every year i could add a, 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 a technique uh, a technique more um usually i always you, I started from a period working more on maximal strength and, uh, clearly I, 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 work not with blocks, pure blocks, but I, I work with a period in which I give more emphasis to some, uh, physical characteristics like maximal strength at the beginning power, uh, in the middle, and I move towards more dynamic exercises. Uh, like plyometrics and for like that. So the progression was basically a traditional progression, maximal strength, power, and plyometric training in different combinations, of course. Uh, for some competition that were not the target, I just uh, taper a couple of weeks before, and immediately after the competition, we came back to the normal training. And this was basically... Was my, um, scheme of working. Uh, the Olympic Games was a bit different. Uh, for example, we didn't have any, anything new in the Olympic game. We, we just use what the, the, the athletes, the team were, were used to do. We didn't want you to, to change too much. And we work, uh, a lot on power and we, Periodize in terms of more in terms of uh, tactical and technical training. And I would say that that's one of the characteristic of my work. I always give the, the, the priority to technical and tactical training. So for, for having a good technical training, you don't have to be tired. So I try to avoid fatigue for uh, technical and tactical training. So the, the periodization was built around the technical training. And I think this is very important because what we have to do as a strength coaches or standard conditioning coaches is to allow the, the, the athletes to express their technical potential. But, uh, because of that, we don't have to influence in a negative way, the technical potential, because if they are tired, they cannot train properly, technically. So I try, I, I train twice a week, uh, uh, the legs, for example, and I try to uh, change the work based on the technical technical training they plan with the coach. And I have a very good relation with the coach. That's the most important
0: thing. So I didn't do anything strange actually. So that that brings me on to something that I probably should have mentioned a little bit ago. And that's something another thing that's kind of get a lot getting a lot of heat recently. Well, over the last probably five or ten years, is tactical periodization. What's your thoughts on that, Franco?
1: Uh, tactical periodization. I mean, now it's quite uh, it's very popular. The claim uh, why is effective is because there are coaches uh, that were quite successful with this approach. Uh, I can say that there are other coaches, uh, probably more, that were successful as well without using tactical periodization. So I don't think this is can be used as a as a claim or proof of, uh, of effectiveness has done sometimes. Um, I think that modifying the, the tactical, the tactical components in order to train also physical components, um, is a bit dangerous from a, a skill acquisition perspective, because as soon as you change something tactically to, to, to train, uh, because you, you, you move the attention to physical components, you are basically not training tactically anymore you're just changing the focus of of your of your training so i think it's a concept it's a quite it's a bit more complicated than than people think i asked my colleague to help me writing a paper about that so maybe in the future you will you will read more about that
0: Mm -hmm. cool so one last thing that i wanted to chat to you about was a recent publication of yours uh, internal external loads 15 years on and then linking that to a, a little comment that was that you made on Twitter um, talking about magic cutoffs and questionable metrics do you just want to give us a little bit of a um, an overview of that publication and and kind of where, where that came from and and uh, yeah just a bit of an overview of what you the detail that you went into in that in that publication
1: yeah the the commentary was after 515 years, we wanted a bit to clarify a, a bit better the concept of internal and external load because we read in the last year some modifications. I mean, everyone can, can modify the definition, the definitions as they want, but it was not uh, how we intended uh, when we developed this classification. Um, for example, the internal load for us is the response During the exercise, the physiological response during the exercise, it's not the response after the exercise. So indicators like uh, heart rate variability or questionnaires or things like that that are measured after the exercise are not what we, we meant for internal load. The internal load is just the response during the exercise. So that's the main difference compared to some... Uh, manipulations of this definition published in the last years. Uh, the reason why we develop this classification actually is uh, is more uh, conceptual because the problem is that um, in our opinion um, coaches and trainers sometimes focus too much on the exercise and, and less on the effect effects that the exercise can induce on the athletes. So the idea is to move the attention to, to what happened uh, within the, uh, the athlete. And this is uh, quite important because uh, uh, as soon as you have an exercise that is, uh, let's say, generic and not specific and far, very far from the movement the athletes have to do, uh, but induce some physiological changes that can be effective for the performance, this is fine, so you can use it. And this is a bit to, to counterbalance the the, the the test for uh, specific training or functional trainings or things like that. I'm not saying it's, they are wrong in principle. I'm just saying that I don't care if it's specific or not as soon as I obtain what I need. So we want that people focus more on the internal load and on the physiological consequences of what I'm doing. Not just what I see, and for example, this is the error of people using the worst case scenario. Since the since the, the, the run ten times uh, the sprint ten times, uh, I use ten times uh, the sprints during training. Of course, if you approach this uh, as a, as I as I mentioned before, from a physiological perspective, this makes makes no sense. I mean I will I will do what is needed to have the players running 10 times or 100 times uh, in a, during a match sprinting uh, that amount of time and that's the goal of training and the reason why I I tweeted magic cutoffs and questionable matrix is because uh, nowadays uh, we 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 fall in love with the pig I mean the we sometimes uh, I see people mention this 1.5 acute-chronic ratio, and and I see this a lot in uh, on the field. Uh, recently, I was speaking with a medical doctor, um, a sports medicine doctor, and talking about injuries. He told me that is is uh, using this 1.5 uh, cutoff values, and I was really worried <laughs> when I when I heard that. So. Um uh, you know i I had a talk uh, uh, with Ting in in Switzerland uh, what I said and what i I say now is that we have to be careful as a researcher to the to what we communicate and in the message that we spread around because sometimes we don't realize how our messages are um, interpreted in the in the wrong way so at the moment I see a lot of a lot of these uh, magic matrix, uh, So we use the acute chronic, we use the sprinting, we use this even the session RP. I, I mean, the session RP is a global indicator of load. I, I'm afraid, and that's a pity for me because the more they use, the more I'm cited, but I'm afraid that the limitations of uh, session RP are too much to try to use for preventing injuries. It can be used for understanding the load, the training load, but the relation with the injuries, in my opinion, is too, too optimistic.
0: Superb. Well, I promised that I'd keep you on 45 minutes, so I will stick to that promise. So in terms of what's coming up on the fu- in the future, Franco, you've mentioned a couple of things that are on the horizon, but is there anything you haven't mentioned in terms of projects that are coming up that may be of interest to people? Uh there is a topic that i'm quite curious and that we are trying to
1: address and is the overreaching or overtraining in uh, resistance training because uh, a lot of people always mention about the risk of overtraining uh, when you train with weights but for example a systematic review that we have just con- just finished we are writing the paper we found that basically in the literature, there are almost no studies really addressing the overreaching or overtraining or resistance training. And so I'm starting to think if this, uh, if this phenomenon really exists. And based on, on, on my experience, it's rare to see someone overtraining do, uh, doing a resistance training. What we can find is a sort of acute fatigue that in few weeks uh, you can you can solve in, but nothing nothing like the overtraining or non-functional overreaching in endurance so this, this is a topic I'm quite curious and um, I have a lot of friends for example who are bodybuilders and they commonly experience symptoms of uh, overtraining or overreaching but these are mainly related to the caloric deficit so when they are dieting, preparing competition, they, they feel these symptoms. So I think again, that is not related to the, to the overload, but is more related to the, to external factor like uh, diet. That's another topic uh, I'm interested in. As I said, I would like to find a relation between uh, the physical components and physical fitness and tactical behavior during during the match because i think that one of the errors we made for years including me because i probably i also contributing I contributed to to that is uh, to focus too much on the physical activity during the match um, mainly because uh, uh me, we misinterpret some studies And we were thinking that if you run more, uh, you play better. What we know today is that this is not true. I mean, the best teams sometimes run less than the worst teams, but still the physical components uh, probably are important. But in my opinion are important because they can influence the tactical behavior. So this is uh, probably the most challenging things I'm going to do with my colleagues here. Is to find this relation, which is quite complicated, because we have also to find uh, good ways to measure these tactical uh, behaviors, and uh, we are we are working on that, and I think we we are close to to have very
0: good matrix for that. Superb. So, where where's the best place for people to first get in touch if they have any questions about what we've chatted about, and secondly, where's the best place for you, for people to access your research, both present and past?
1: Uh, I mean, they can. I, I'm quite active, and not not every day, but when I can, on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, and. I, I, I'm not uh, still a social media anymore, so yeah, I just registered on Twitter a few months ago. so I, I'm not very well organized but I, I mean my papers can be fine can, can be found uh, on PubMed and I can I, I have a, an account on Twitter and Facebook. so if someone needs usually I answer, always answer when I they, when they receive messages both on Facebook and and Twitter. I would say that they spend from one to two hours a day to answer to all the communication and emails. So if they need to contact me, I'm happy to, to help if I can, and they can use the the social the,
0: the traditional social media. Perfect. So if anyone wants a, 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 the full paper of something they found on PubMed online, they can just get in touch with you and you'll fire it over. Yeah, or okay. oh, they can send me an email and send the, uh, the
1: PDF.
0: Perfect. Well, really appreciate your thoughts, Franco. Thank you for being so honest and open with, with some of the topics that we've chatted about. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you very much and uh, have a great evening. Thank you. thank you very much. Thanks, Franco. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Franco. So really pleased to get Franco on and have him discuss some really interesting topics that have been di- that have been chatted about extensively in the podcast and potentially challenge them. So that really interesting chat with Franco. So big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to iMeasureU, Fatigue Science and St. Mary's University for sponsoring this episode today. Really cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks from people involved in youth development, to involved in um, different sports from rugby to football to uh, senior lectures and universities so hopefully a whole spectrum of people coming up over the next couple of weeks and months so again thanks for tuning in press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will chat to you next week